arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. to a fight from 1954 on the 17th of June where Rocky Marciano defeated Ezra Charles. It went the distance, Marciano winning on points, a unanimous decision. Marciano was 30 years old at the time. The reason I put that in there because give you a little hint that Jones is going to end up in the ring during this episode. It's a little bit different than the Marciano-Ezra Charles fight. With Jones's car burnt to a crisp, Coco manages to get him a Mustang, but that Mustang is a hot car and Jones is racing it up Route 32 and over the mountain. He's stopped by the quirky, failed cop, Quirky Corrigan. Only a telephone call from Coco prevents Jones from getting a ticket. Word is spreading around the area about Jones inadvertently decking the Iron Man. And who was in that brown Toyota circling Mobley's house 25 years in the past? 
All of this because a guy who lived in Jones's Colonial on the Common 25 years ago disappeared. And who is left to stop Jones's snooping? Probably the person who set his Jeep aflame. Here is episode 3 of Six Feet Under Matthias Jones series by Robert P. Fitton. Fitton on the air, beginning now. Six Feet Under, Chapter 9. Jones remembered the U-Taxi dropping him off in front of the house after 2 a.m. He was not drunk, but feeling pretty good, having consumed a few more beers and having spent the last couple of hours dancing with Bibi at the club. Around 12.45, according to the blue neon rim clock behind the bar, some blonde-haired brute named Derek appeared at the bar. He was unshaven, had a scar down his neck, and said he was looking for his Bibi. Jones was reminded of Gallagher's advice about getting into trouble at Club Max. By one o'clock, he did not see Bibi or Derek. Coco had left the club, and Jones took the U-Taxi back to Hamilton. On his voicemail during the night, Coco reassured him that Derek was Bibi's brother. Jones, still troubled by Arlo's information about Lark and the question of blackmail by Mobley, checked his watch. He soon realized he had been sleeping for eight hours. The room had brightened, but he heard rain hitting the roof. He kicked off the covers and stretched out. Then he heard a jackhammer. He rolled out of bed and peered out the shore road window as the car turned the corner and zoomed toward the beach. As he descended the stairs, a cooling breeze plowed up the staircase. Then he also smelled hot chocolate. As he rounded the hallway, he saw an older, unshaven man and two other men, younger and rangy, sitting at his kitchen table. It's about time you got your sorry ass out of bed, said the old guy. Who the hell are you? Don't play that innocent routine with me. And what's that smell? You boys shower this week? He asked the two grubby-looking men. We swam the quarry that day and it was 50 degrees, Bose, said the long-necked man sitting next to Jones's cabinet. Right, Iron Man? Who the hell are you guys? Asked Jones as he looked toward the rain-pelted sliders. Listen, chump, you're the one who hired us to do the job. I never hired you. The long-necked guy called Slappy picked up a knife off the counter. Don't push me! Jones crossed the kitchen and opened the sliders. Bucky Driscoll slowly shoveled dirt out of a rectangular hole in his patio. His Aussie hat was strapped around his flabby chin. He wore a soaked t-shirt that read, The Patio Boys. Bucky, what have you done to my patio? The historical society will go ballistic. Hey, this guy's got to work, Matthias. Arnie got me the job. We have to put footings down six feet, said Bose. Jones's mouth remained open for several seconds as he pinned the huge pile of dirt behind Bucky. Get to work, Driscoll. Yes, sir, Mr. Bose. I'm shoveling, I'm shoveling. No, yelled Jones. Stop, stop right now. The Iron Man raised his fist and spoke with an Irish brogue. Why, you dirty, rotten chiseler, backing out of a job. I'm gonna beat you to a pulp. As he moved toward Jones, Jones lifted his clenched fist and hit the Iron Man square with a stinging jab. The Iron Man went flying against the lower cabinets and lay unconscious on the floor. Oh, said Slappy. Nobody ever flattened the Iron Man before. He was undefeated. Unless he was sucker punched, 
said Bose, squinting. The guy came after me, said Jones, as he removed the knife from the counter and headed outside into the drizzle. Come on, Bucky, you're all done. Yeah, but Bose said... Forget what Bose said, said Jones, extending his hand down the hole. Pulling the tubby Bucky out of the hole proved a challenge. Several times, Bucky fell back into the dirt. Finally, with both hands locked around Bucky's wrist, Jones walked Bucky onto the pavers. Thanks, Matthias. I didn't know how I was going to get out. Look, Bucky, I'm sorry you lost your job, but he looked around and sniffed the air. Stinks out here. I didn't do it. Right, right, said Jones. You probably should go home and shower. Nah, I don't want to wake Evelyn. Uh-oh. Whoopsie. Bucky quickly covered his mouth with his hand. Jones spun around. Wait a minute. You have Arnie's sister sleeping in your apartment? Dias, you can't tell anybody. Evelyn will kill me. So that's it. You were in your place with Evelyn Dewars, said Jones, pausing and trying to get that bizarre thought out of his head. Right when your car was stolen. But it was brought back. Yeah, I guess somebody borrowed it. All right. I have to deal with these Jamokes. No, their last name is Brannigan. Right. Take care, Bucky. Wait! Wait! said Bucky as he lowered his voice. You can make some big bucks, Matthias. How's that, Bucky? asked Jones, taking one step toward the kitchen. Dinosaurs. Bucky, you really tax my patience. Arnie says there's dinosaur bones all over Prince William County, and the museums pay big bucks. Good. You and Arnie get your pick and shovels and have a great time. Jones did not see the Brannigan boys in the kitchen as he stepped across the pavers. Then he stopped. Professor Mobley rocketed into his head. As he turned, Bucky picked up his jacket off the patio. Goodbye, Matthias. Bucky, where are the bones? Right next to that gas line I hit. You what? asked Jones. Why do you think it stinks out here? asked Bucky as he moved toward the shrubbery gate. I don't believe this, said Jones, afraid that even his cell could ignite the gate in the air. He would have to call on his landline before something set off an explosion. I hope you realize you nearly blew up half the block, said Tex, the gas company foreman. The gas crew in their yellow hard hats surrounded the ditch in the backyard. Jones studied the name on his blue uniform. Look, Tex, I had nothing to do with this. The patio boys did it. Tex climbed back in the hole with one of his guys. Yeah, well, you can try and weasel out of this, Jones. You're going to be fined. Count on it. Strickland exited the cruiser and hurried through the gate into the backyard. What the hell is going on here, Matthias? It's a pool party, George. Not funny. You almost blew up the neighborhood, exclaimed Strickland, looking at the pile of dirt in the rectangular hole. Plus, there was an order in place by the Historical Commission not to disturb this site. You should be yelling at Bose Brannigan, George. Well, you're the one who hired him and his goofball sons. To have Bucky Driscoll fooling around with gas lines. Wait a minute, George. Hey, Matthias! Jones closed his eyes briefly. Arnie got out of his blue pickup on Shore Road. He kicked open the gate and walked up to Strickland and Jones. Arnie, we don't need your nonsense right now. Hey, I'm just trying to help. So, George, said Jones, I wake up to Bose and his clowns down in my kitchen. Told you, Matthias, hiring them. That's just it. He called me last week about working on the patio, but I never hired him. 
I practically hung up on them. They're idiots. So you're telling me you didn't hire Bose and company? Asked Strickland. Right. Hey, that's not what I heard, said Arnie, now smoking a cigarette near the cordoned off hole. Shut up, Arnie. Hey, Bose is pretty upset. I couldn't care less if Bose is upset. You're the one who told him to call me. You begged me to get the patio, boys, replied Arnie. Don't push me, Arnie, said Jones, pointing. Arnie, why don't you beat it? Hey, I'm not the one who has to deal with Herbert Lane, said Arnie as he slinked along the hedges toward the gate. So, Matthias, I'll straighten this out with Tex over here, said Strickland. Arnie called from the gate. Kendall Lincoln told Picotta that Matthias said she could take her court order and... Arnie, shut up, yelled Strickland. If anyone's in trouble, it's you. Arnie stood by the pickup door. Yeah, wait until Lane gets a hold of you. Muddy says you'll do time. Strickland grabbed Jones' shoulder as he started toward Arnie. I've about had it with Arnie's big mouth, George. Forget him. You're right, he is in trouble if he sent Bose over here. Chief Strickland, shouted Tex. Is the line all right, Tex? Taking care of it, but you better get over here. Sure. Jones stared at Arnie, still not inside the truck. Strickland cupped his hand. Matthias, over here. Yeah, George, said Jones. He walked up to the edge of the hole. Texas's work boot was positioned in the dirt around six inches from the skeletal remains of a human hand and forearm. Strickland's dark eyes focused on Jones. This is the end of the line. Maybe the Mobley mystery has been solved. I'm not so sure, George. By late afternoon, Jones's backyard had been surrounded by a plastic mesh hurricane fence. Television trucks and radio vans with their microwave antennas were parked along Shore Road. Clayton Morris's medical examiner's station wagon had been backed into the gate area for hours. Police from Prince William stood on either side of the gate as well as along the shrubbery and in the front of Jones's colonial. From the kitchen TV, Herbert Lane, his clipped gray toupee firmly in place, stepped up to the microphones with his assistant, the gaudy Roland Chance, who was loaded with gold jewelry. Nigel leaned toward the set on the counter. I'm sure Hamilton Fletcher is watching this at Fletcher Hill. At least Herbert will keep the college out of this. He wouldn't be that dumb. Jones chuckled as he sipped on his cranberry juice. Oh, give him a chance, Nigel. Jones's cell phone rang. Jones. Jonesy, what the hell is going on over there? We have a body, Coco, said Jones as Nigel headed back inside. You called it, Jonesy. Under my patio. Huh, Lane is going to flap his trap. Channel 10 just said Driscoll found the body. What the hell is that moron doing digging in your backyard? He was working for Bose. I can't believe my ears. You hired that fool? No, Arnie Dewar sent him over here. I never authorized it, and Bose hired Bucky because he was looking for work. Ha, this is a perfect job match. The rodent and the snake. Jones grinned as Herbert Lane cleared his throat and spoke. Citizens of Prince William County, I am here to inform you that through the diligent efforts of the District Attorney's Office, I am ready to announce the discovery of a body here at Number One Shore Road in Hamilton. However, this is not something that just happened. This body has been buried under a patio for at least two decades. We are working closely with the Hamilton Police Department, George Strickland, as well as State Police Captain Harris, 
in the college at Hamilton. The identity of this individual is not known at this time. Ah, I knew he'd bring the college into this, said Jones. The old man hates Lane, even though he pays money to his campaign. Lane continued. This home has been owned by numerous Hamilton College professors over the years and is presently owned by Coach Matthias Jones. Ah, what an idiot, said Coco. Great, said Jones, pursing his lips. Yes, Hamilton, said Nigel outside the sliders on his cell phone. I did not know that Herbert would mention the college. Yes, I'll tell him you wish to speak with him. Jones's second line flashed with the call letters for Channel 10. Channel 10 is calling me. Don't answer it, Jonesy. They'll stop making things up. Lane now answered questions from the reporters. Bill Scobie from the Evening News spoke up first. Mr. District Attorney, um, who would do such a thing? Lane stared at Scobie for several seconds. Well, I, I just don't know. So you're saying that a person was murdered? Asked the court reporter, Kara Collins. How the hell do I know? Don't put words in my mouth, Kara, erupted Lane. Who are your suspects? Asked a blonde-haired woman by the edge of the hole. The man in the moon. Lane pointed his finger. Did I say there were suspects? You people all like a headline. Roland Chance checked his gold Rolex. You're speaking too long, Herbert. Shut up, Roland. I'll say whatever the hell I want to say. <laughs> what a real class act. How does he win elections, asked Jones. He cheats, said Coco. Listen, the skinny from Picada's office is that Lincoln is suing you on behalf of the wife, the historical lady. Come on. Call Bentley before they jump on you, Jonesy. I didn't do anything. <laughs> that doesn't matter when it comes to lawyers, bro. Let Bentley handle it. Do you know Chick Corey, asked Jones. Of course I know Chick Corey. You taken up boxing after you knocked out the Iron Man, Jonesy? Asked Coco, laughing. Mobley's girlfriend, the one with the charm bracelet, worked out at Chick Corey's gym, according to Arlo. So what? She might have been the woman picked up in the Toyota. Maybe she killed Mobley. If I were you, Jonesy, I'd worry more about Derek Gataki, BB's brother. Guy's done time in the Atlantic pen. Why is he upset with me? Look, uh, he and I never got along. Man like to sell drugs to kids. I dropped a dime to the feds because the guy's no good. He never should have been in the club. The claw is following him. He knows you're my friend, so he wants you away from BB. I didn't know the scum was back in town. Great. What about Chick? Can you get me in there? Yeah, sure. But I think you're wasting your time grilling Chick. Let Morris and his goons at the coroner's office find out who owns those bones. I'll talk to you. Strickland moved past Nigel, still talking with Hamilton Fletcher. Having been taken off his boat, Strickland wore a white undershirt under his unzipped blue police jacket. He glanced at the TV and faced Jones. Well, Lane just put his foot in his mouth. The epitome of tact, said Jones. That's good, that's good. Keep this under your hat, Matthias, and this is preliminary. Clayton is talking about those remains being female. And from what you said, Mobley had a girlfriend from Corey's gym in PW. I understand that, but we don't know who she was, other than she was picked up by a Toyota. Hamilton must know that answer, or even Lark. Snowden was the rogue element. This is a legal matter now, not conjecture. 
So you're saying Mobley killed the girlfriend and disappeared? Asked Strickland, again checking the TV. Maybe, but let me run with this side road theory. What if somebody was in love with this dead woman? And killed both Mobley and the woman? Right, because the Toyota came back after Lark left. Arthur Conan Doyle is in my midst. Watch it, George. Jones nodded as, on TV, Bucky Driscoll, back in his security uniform, stood up by the common. Jones ran to the window and saw the TV lights and the reporter in front of Bucky. Your name, sir? She said, extending out the microphone. Uh, I'm Officer Driscoll. What kind of nonsense is this? Officer Driscoll, I understand your investigation has uncovered a body in back of this colonial on the Hamilton Common. Yes, that is true, Caroline. Cara. Huh? What gave you the clues to the location of the body, Officer Driscoll? Well, we investigators have our techniques, said Bucky, holding his belt loops. That's enough, exclaimed Strickland as he stormed down the hallway and toward the front door. Jones grinned and looked back at the TV set. When did you alert your superiors? asked the reporter. Oh, no, they came to me, knowing my ability to get to the heart of an investigation. Bucky looked to his left, and Jones heard Strickland yelling on the TV set. Uh-oh, gotta go. Bye. Bucky darted right and back toward Shore Road. The screen picture switched to Jones's backyard and Herbert Lane trying to order around the gray-bearded Clayton Morris. Jones called Clayton's cell phone. Clayton removed the phone from his pocket. Matthias. I'm in the house and saw Herbert sticking his nose into your business, Clayton. Herbert Lane began chiding Roland Chance as Clayton looked toward the sliders. Was it a male or female? I can't tell you that right now. Okay, does the body have a charm bracelet? No, no charm bracelet. One more thought, Clayton. Is it possible there are two bodies down there? Why do you say that, Matthias? Asked Clayton, looking toward Jones and the slider doors. Because Professor Mobley had a girlfriend, and she is unknown and may have worked out at Corey's gym. That was 25 years ago, according to Strickland. So you think Mobley and this body were buried under your patio? Right. It's worth checking. I don't know about that. You just have to have somebody dig. You have nothing to lose. I'll have to check with George. But thanks for getting Herbert off my back. Let me know, Clayton. Clayton nodded and placed the phone back in his coat pocket. Jones's door opened. The red-haired Franny McShane lifted a tray from the front step. She wore her aqua-colored waitress uniform under her suede coat. Franny! How about some chow, coach? Wow, thanks. What do you have? Turkey dinner, she said, smiling, and opened the silver cover. Jones sniffed the turkey. That smells great, thank you. My pleasure. I'm sure you've had it with the press and Herbert Lane and all over your backyard. Herbert was just on TV. Oh, we all saw it at the Colonial House. They're still laughing when I left. And Bucky was on TV, too. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Sit down, Matthias, she said, serving the steaming plate. Bucky made an ass out of himself. Franny looked down at Jones and raised her brows. His trademark. Six Feet Under, Chapter 10 Jones, are you fooling around with BB? Not that I care, bro. Jones, walking along the common to the Enterprise, came to an abrupt stop. Where did you hear that? Never mind where I heard it. Listen, the word is out. You gotta back off. 
Derek is insane and connected to part of Fury's people. Jones stared at the phone and placed it against his ear. All I did was dance with the woman, Coco. Then this brute brother comes in later and physically removes Bibi from Club Max. I'm telling you, leave it on the dance floor. Look, Coco, I'm on my way to see McGill about Jerry St. Clair's article. Just don't bring that fool St. Clair back to Hamilton, Jonesy. McGill understands that Jerry is persona non grata. At least Lincoln is off my back with that historical society nonsense. Lincoln is a high roller. That's why he's Picard's lawyer. LG told me the same thing. I could see that when I met with him. I'm telling you, Lincoln is as crooked as Picard. Just slicker. They're still digging in back of my house. For what? Possible other body. Come on, Jonesy. Mobley knocked off some woman and left town. Then where is he? How the hell do I know? That was 25 years ago. Jones meandered onto Main Street. We'll see. McGill and his short-haired wife Susan sat in the lobby of the Enterprise building. On the glass coffee table was an old cassette player. McGill stood. Hello, Matthias, said Susan with a grin. Welcome to Fireside Theater, said McGill. I found Jerry's cassette in the storage loft. Jones looked at the word scrolled on the cassette. The death knell? From 25 years ago, said Susan. It's classic Jerry. Does Jerry know we're looking into this, asked Jones. He does not, and he won't, because he'd be up here in a shot wherever he is. Well, where is he, asked Jones. I don't know. Have a seat. Can I get you some coffee, Matthias? I'm okay. Let it rip, Susan. This is the third time we've heard it, said McGill. Jones prepared to hear Jerry's annoying voice. McGill pushed the play button, and five seconds later, after some jostling and the sound of cars passing on a rainy surface, Jerry St. Clair spoke in a low, raspy whisper that formed a gritted, overworked dribble originating from the smoldering tobacco leaves from the last camel cigarette that laid waste to his voice and lungs. It's 11 o'clock in the morning, mid-October, with the sun not shining the look of a hard, wet rain in the clearness of the foothills. I was wearing my powder blue suit with a dark blue shirt tie and a display handkerchief. Black brogues, black wool socks, and dark blue clocks on them. Stop, yelled Jones. You recognize it, Matthias? asked McGill, smiling. Sure, he's copying Raymond Chandler, the start of the big sleep. Unbelievable. I was neat, clean, shaved, and sober, and I didn't care who knew it. I was everything the well-dressed private detective ought to be. The rain pelted down like bullets from a mob hit all aimed at me, Jerry St. Clair. I owned the Enterprise, a small circulating rag around southern New Hampshire. I dodged the raindrops and stood under the copper canopy of Swanson's Bar in downtown Hamilton, New Hampshire, a college town professors that talked the eager, and those low-life scum that instructed the professors about the facts of life, death, fast woman, and killer thugs. Charlie Belinda cracked the steel door with his work boot and checked outside. A leftover served medium rare from, from the days of running hooch and heavy ale north of the border. Bulldog Charlie gave a quick nod, his fire hydrant neck barely moving. 
This is my punishment for missing mass. God, I'm sorry. The stale, stuffy, smoking cauldron housed the dregs, the displaced, and those who couldn't break off the booze of the runaway pill-popping frenzy. They hugged the horseshoe bar, gripping their glasses as if their lives depended on the next swig of distilled scotch liquor. No tips for Swanson, just the remnants of a scratch, glossy slab installed by his old man when he unlocked the doors to this paradise of a speakeasy in 1931. Tom, get to the point, please. It's coming, it's coming. I received my tip from a drifter who was no longer welcome in the Prince William dives. His name was Bertie Doberman, and he had ears that could suck in secrets better left six foot under. Botted him a fin to drop the net on Mickey Snowden. For another sawbuck, Doberman detailed the time down to an exactitude of perfection when the glamour boy from South Boston would stick his ugly puss through the door. I checked my army issued Swiss watch from the big one, WW2. Jones rolled his eyes. Twenty-three seconds, the minute hand would pass noon, and the powerhouse mobster named Mickey Snowden would enter Swanson's bar and own it. Twelve. Snowden's greasy hair darkened once he was inside. He looked and sounded rough, and I slinked down the side booth and pretended to be scouring my own spreadsheet of local news. When Bertie left, I knew there'd be trouble. In waiting for Snowden, I never observed the patriarch of the Fletcher family, hotshot Hamilton Fletcher, a ruthless money grubber who could never pass up a deal to invest that green paper that lines every bloodsucker's wallet into a scheme to make more money. Fletcher, at the age of 33, was about to consummate a dirty deal he wanted to hide from the world. Jones raised his hands and McGill stopped the cassette. As much as Jerry Chandler here is spinning a tale, what the hell happened? Are you telling me Jerry heard Snowden and Hamilton arranged the science building deal? Jerry heard it and more. It was the night before the Finley-Mobley fight. Jerry talks about that, too. No, that's okay. What else happened, Tom? Before the fight, Mobley overheard Hamilton talking to Mickey in the corridor. Mobley was in the locker room, waiting to go into the ring. Hamilton later found out and phoned Mickey. Mickey personally came up to your house. And this is important because somehow Jerry got close to Bertie Delberman and knew when Mickey would be at Mobley's house. But Jerry was on the top of the drugstore downtown, way too far away to see what happened inside, but in a perfect perch to view the logistics of the big blowout. God love him. He stops the Chandler, but just reports it now, said McGill. Where was the counter at, Susan? She checked the yellow pad. 7.52, Tom. He screeched the tape ahead and then pushed the play button. I heard the gunshot. I scrambled for the drain pipe to alert Chief Wilson. The old pipe had the stability of a sandcastle. It snapped and I could only watch what happened next. I doubted Hamilton Fletcher would shoot Mobley. He could have done that without calling Snowden. Lark Larson wouldn't have the stones to pull off a shooting and for what? If Lark shot Mobley, he'd have to be in it for something big. And then there was the most gorgeous specimen of female prowess, 
Watching her was like taking in New Year's in Times Square and the 4th of July in DC, all wrapped up in a tight skirt with legs that could make you drool and gold jewelry that would make you broke. I didn't catch your name. What an idiot, said Jones. Didn't catch your name? That's Jerry. She's probably over Clayton's morgue. McGill sat up. If that's true, who killed her? She left before Snowden and was picked up, according to Jerry. The Toyota, said Jones. Right. But she came back in the Toyota. Why? McGill picked up the yellow pad and wrote something down. Right. Why the hell would you go back to a murder scene, or at least a shooting? How does this involve Lark? He practically ran for his life and then drove like a maniac up Shore Road. Susan pointed at Tom. Something inside that house made Lark run. Remember, Mobley had pictures of Lark up the creek with that candy lady. McGill pinched the bridge of his nose. I'm trying not to picture that one. Lark is still a suspect. He had a clear motive to kill Mobley. But Tom, where is Mobley? They're digging all around my backyard. I understand, said McGill. Then Mobley, although wounded, could have killed her. Buried the body under your patio, said Susan. Right, said Jones as he thought about the Toyota. Somebody else is involved, and it's obvious, the driver of the Toyota. Glad you said that, said McGill, running his finger down the pad. Jerry got the last three digits of the plate. Like that ever helped anything, said Jones sarcastically. In deference to him, the car was parked 50 yards away in the dark. Right. Finding that plate would be tough. What about the person driving the car? Jerry wasn't sure if it was a man or a woman. Jones laughed. That right. That person got out of the car, but Jerry only saw the person enter through the front door. Arnie never mentioned half of this. And Tom, Jerry couldn't describe the person going into the house? This is all nonsense. Listen, Jerry fell asleep on the top of the drugstore. He wasn't sure for how long, but the car was gone when he woke up to see someone riding off on the bike. He thought the tire was flat. What time was that? 2.15 a.m. Wow, that Toyota could have left hours before. What a dope for falling asleep. Which brings us to the person with the bike, said Susan. Killer or one just getting their bicycle? After two in the morning? That person is definitely in the middle of this, said Jones. I'm even more confused now. The actual story was edited down. Jerry checked with Hamilton and Hamilton ripped up the original. We have the copy. As far as I'm concerned, it proves nothing at this point. We'll stay locked in the safe. What were the last three digits, Tom? AE1, said McGill, and we continue checking for the mystery woman. She disappeared, Tom. We'll be finding out real soon. As far as Mobley and the guy in the car, we may never know. Where are you headed? The monthly historical meeting this afternoon at the community building and our favorite president, Miriam Kendall Lincoln. Jones shook his head. What's the matter, Matthias? asked Susan. Didn't catch your name. The white 
clapboard community building was less than a few hundred yards from Jones's Colonial, but set back from the first parish church. Inside the pane windows, people lingered in the main hall. A microphone had been placed up front, along with a few chairs and, and more with the audience. The sign for the meeting was posted on the clapboards next to the green entrance door. Jones opened the door to a conversational buzz. The short-haired Miriam in a skirt that reached her ankles engaged in conversation with several men up front. More people spoke in groups and some had already sat in the folding wooden chairs. Jones walked across the planks toward Miriam. She did not see him until he stood behind her. Her face reddened and she ground her teeth. What are you doing here? I'm a citizen of this town. I came to hear you talk. Excuse me, she said to the two men and proceeded to lead Jones to the side stairway. You certainly have a lot of nerve after you defied me. And just who the hell are you? asked Jones. I came over here to tell you I'm not responsible for those men digging up my yard. Her dark eyes reflected her fury at Jones. Oh, please, how would they start that job without your approval? Because I didn't give the go-ahead. Now with this body under a historic area. Listen, Arnie Doers at the lumber company sent the patio boys over to my house. I never authorized it. And you want me to believe that? At this point, I don't care whether you do or you don't, Miriam. I am Miss Kendall Lincoln, and I'm somebody who's trying to explain to someone who won't listen. Jones turned around and marched back into the hall. Strickland, in his cockies and blue sweater, and his wife Mary entered through the side door. Matthias, becoming a history buff? asked Strickland. That woman is taking an unusual position on this patio thing, George. Hello, Mary. Matthias? But she's just doing her job. Maybe I can get you as a character witness when Herbert comes after me. Don't even worry. This is all Arnie's fault. Jones pressed his lips. I'm not going to worry about Miss Kendall Lincoln. What I'm worried about is the identity of that body in Clayton's morgue. Attorney Lincoln exited a beige Mercedes and kept his eyes fixed on Jones as he moved up the cement walk. Looks like you have yourself in quite a fix, said Lincoln, once again being nice. Jones stared at him. What do you want, Lincoln? You need a lawyer? I have a lawyer. As a private citizen, let me say I'm sorry for your troubles. Which trouble, counselor? Lincoln produced his charming smile. Jones, why don't you and Bentley join me at the chateau tonight and I'll pick up the tab. Why? Lincoln put his hand on Jones's shoulder. Jones looked down. We'll iron out this historical thing. Huh, not a bad idea. Your wife is pretty upset with me. I'll check with LG. Good. Talking before the courtroom is always productive. Hang in there. Jones watched Lincoln disappear inside. He remembered his father's adage, if you don't trust somebody, then don't. Six Feet Under, Chapter 11 The astounded Jones peered out his front window at the cherry-red Mustang Cobra parked at the curb. He rushed into the foyer and opened the front door. On the threshold was a legal-sized white envelope containing keys and a handwritten note from Coco telling him he would be surprised what he could do inside that sports car. Jones grinned. Amazing. 
just two hours, after driving around Hamilton like a first-time race car driver on the track, Jones, his hands on the leather steering wheel, revved up the Mustang through the Devonshire Hills toward the notch. Being able to accelerate easily from 70 miles an hour gave him a sense of power until the red and blue lights began flashing on the Prince William side of the hills. He recognized the cop as Corky Corrigan, a failed Prince William cop who lingered on the force for years. Corrigan's compact body rocked from side to side and he stroked his gray mustache. Corrigan wore a battered white motorcycle helmet even though he drove a regular cruiser. Jones saw himself in the Mustang in Corrigan's reflective sunglasses. Officer Corrigan. Coach Jones, I usually spot you uh, racing your Jeep and uh, Prince William. License and registration. I don't drag race my Jeep anywhere, said Jones, taking out his license. He found the registration under the visor. The Jeep was just destroyed in a fire. Maybe if you slowed down, creep. What? asked Jones, studying his badge. Woodrow C. Corrigan? Officer Corrigan to you. Corky, he pointed at Jones. Any more guff from you and you'll be visiting Pinky Harris over the state police barracks. I got carried away with this new car. You're going to pay, Jones. 90 in a 45 mile an hour zone? 90? That's ridiculous. I'll fight that ticket, Corky. You think Judge Cutter is going to give you a break? He'll throw the book at you and you'll go down, creep. Cutter hates speeders. What is he, the hanging judge? Not a bad idea, said Corrigan as he stepped back toward the cruiser and wrote up the ticket. Jones's phone rang. Don't answer it. You can't tell me not to answer my phone. Insubordination. I'll add that to the charges. Jones. Hey, Jonesy, I just cleared the meeting with Chick. Good. Word is all over town, you deck the Iron Man. He came after me in my own kitchen, Coco, said Jones as he studied Corrigan back at the cruiser writing up the ticket. Nobody ever KO'd the Iron Man. I'll put it on my resume. Don't be a wise-ass. Where are you? I'm just over the notch. I got stopped by Corky Corrigan. That sleazeball? He's writing a ticket. That is, if he knows how to write. Don't take any guff from that clown, said Coco. I have no choice. Corrigan used to be a beat cop in Salem Heights. Let's just say he borrowed from the police pension fund. Nail him on that before he traces the Mustang, Jonesy. The guy's a thief. They're letting him pay it back. Pacheco swept it under the rug because Corrigan is his brother-in-law. You ask him about the office's pension fund and see what happens. Then get over to the gym. I have to pick up Uncle Dulio later at the smorgasbord. I'll see you, chicks. The swaying Corrigan meandered along the road shoulder and back to the Mustang. His smile bordered on arrogant. He threw the license and registration at Jones. This car is registered in South Boston to the Fiore organization, Dave Toomey. I'm going to throw the book at you, Jones. Kip Bosco told me you were trouble. Kip Bosco is a crooked vice cop. He's my buddy said Corrigan, holding up the yellow ticket. Is that right? Did he ever see any of the cash from the office's pension fund? Corrigan's mouth froze. His eyes did not blink in the ticket attached to his pinched fingers, furrowed in midair. How do you know about the pension fund? 
You know, Corky, cops in glass houses shouldn't... I don't live in no glass house. Corrigan slowly retracted the ticket. He twitched his thick mustache. You have a nice day. Jones leaned back to the headrest and laughed as Corrigan stomped back to the cruiser. Corrigan gazed back at the Mustang one time before slipping inside the police car. Jones raced the RPM meter and pushed the accelerator as he popped the clutch. Corrigan and the cruiser soon faded away in a swirl of dust and smoke as Jones smoothly increased speed along the rock ledge. He soon slowed as the house on the periphery of Prince William appeared. The stone spires of St. Bart's rose into the autumn sky a half a mile ahead. Gallagher had a spreading yellow maple at the corner of the rectory lot. Jones made several turns toward the water. Corey's gym on the second floor of a brick building from the 20th century was along the docks not too far from where Coco and his brother Anthony grew up on Canal Street. Jones parked the car on the street at least 50 feet from the building. He stepped outside as Coco's gray beamer moved over the hill. Coco swung into a hidden driveway. Jones met him in the front of a large wood-paneled door under a faded red and black sign to Corey's gym. You didn't get a ticket, did you, Jonesy? No, I did not, said Jones, as Coco pulled open the heavy door. Everybody's got a pressure point, bro, he said as they climbed the steep wood stairs, lighted only by a couple of windows on the landing above. The sound of boxing gloves smacking, exercise equipment shaking the floor, and someone barking out instructions created an old-time atmosphere. He was stunned. Good. Corrigan thinks he's a tough guy, but he's a pussycat. Jones followed Coco into an expansive area with a high, metal-gridded ceiling. A few dozen men worked out on the exercise machines or punched the worn leather bags. A bench press and barbells formed the rear wall in front of a massive wall mirror. Under the tall windows, what appeared to be a regulation-sized ring with actual sparring partners had been elevated over the wood plank floor. Several women in tight yoga pants wandered around the musty gym. A craggy-faced man with thinning, wispy hair smiled when he saw Coco. He wore a gray jersey with the gym name in blue letters, and he had a white towel around the nape of his neck. There's my man, said Chick as he cupped his hand and smacked the side of Coco's head. Jones had never seen anyone whack Coco. How's the club? Haven't seen you in there in a while, Chick. Things ain't like they used to be. He turned to Jones. I seen you in the papers, Jonesy. You're building up quite a record. Then again, after that Toad Lawson, you must look like a Superman, he said, shaking Jones's hands. It's all over the streets what you did to the Iron Man. He started it in my kitchen. That man's always had a temper, especially with a few pops, right, Coco? All three of them Brannigans are trouble, Chick. Chick waved his hand through the air. Old man Brannigan, Bose. Fought here years ago before the Iron Man turned pro. He's punch drunk. The Iron Man was a fighter? I'm telling you, Jonesy, nobody ever took him out. Coco faced Chick. Listen, I have to pick up Dulio at the smorgasbord. All you can eat. Dulio will bankrupt them, laughed Chick, his dark eyes becoming slits. We'll be back here in 15 or 20 minutes. You and Jonesy can have a conversation. Chick saluted Coco as Jones watched the sparring. 
Dulio bench pressed 500 six years ago. Nobody's ever beat that record. He's a strong guy, said Jones. You have a fight, Jonesy? A little in high school, nothing a note. Wanna go a few rounds with Kid Palooka up there? Asked Chick. He's the one with the shaved head. Jones figured that Kid Palooka weighed at least 250, maybe close to 300 pounds. He wore an undershirt under his tank top and had bulging biceps larger than his legs. I'll, uh, I'll rest on my laurels, Chick. Son, I'll pay you $10,000 if you knock down Palooka. You don't have to knock him out. Jones produced a wide grin. You can't be serious. Chick smiled. He had a space between his two front teeth. Chick Corey is always serious. Look, I've never been trained in boxing skills. I'll give you a grand if you're still standing at the end of the round. I don't think so. Let me be frank with you. I've already got bets going down, not just in the gym, but around PW. It's even odds after what you did to the Iron Man. All I want to do is talk about Mobley. You want to talk about Mobley, then you'll have to go around with Palooka. All the money still stands. Chick, I'm taking my life into my hands. Just hit him like you hit the Iron Man, he said, holding Jones's elbow. I've got 6,000 on you. The Iron Man was invincible. Then I promise I'll talk as much as I can about Mobley. It will be worth your while. How long? Three minutes? 180 seconds. You can survive that, and if you do better, we all make money. What do you say? All right, one round. That's the boy. I'll tell the kid. Jones could not have cared less about the money. He wanted to know what happened to Mobley. Two blonde women in yoga pants approached Jones with shorts and maroon boxing gloves. You can change in the locker room, Jonesy, said the one with huge teeth. Let me give you a tip, honey, said the serious green-eyed one. What's that? asked Jones as they escorted him toward the locker room. Luca hurt his shoulder yesterday. He hit his shoulder and he won't be able to jab. Thanks. Jones looked in the ring. Luca gave him a brutal stare straight from hell. Oh, boy. Less than ten minutes later, Jones stood across from Palooka, a man at least five inches taller, with a reach that would keep him at bay. The stare had not abated, and his dark eyes made him even more formidable up close. Time lost its meaning when the bell sounded. Jones questioned why he had allowed Chick to talk him into facing this behemoth. The sound of the bell, Palooka jabbed, slowly pushing Jones across the ring. Jones prayed he would not be trapped in the corner. His quick jab, used against the Iron Man, had not come within a foot of Palooka's weak shoulder. Then he was hit with a punch to the ribs he hadn't seen coming. He backtracked, not like a fighter, but like someone running the 220. The crowd had gathered around the ring, and the yelling sounded like a championship match. Jones realized he would never get a chance to punch this Hulk. All he could do was circle and stay back. But Palooka was an experienced fighter. He bore in slowly, even though Jones stayed away from the ropes. The next punch came from Palooka's cocked right glove. Jones started coming, but could not get out of the way. The force knocked him onto the ropes and sent his mouthpiece into the crowd. He slid down the ropes, his nose bleeding and his cheek pulsating. 
The referee, a scrawny little man with electrified hair, began the count. Somehow Jones sprang to his feet, shocking Palooka, who thought he had already won. He pummeled Palooka's stomach and shoulders. Then Palooka hit Jones with stinging counter punches and a right cross that sent him to the canvas. At first everything was black, but then the gridded ceiling came into view. He heard Palooka laughing at him as he climbed up the ropes. Jones raised his arms and gloves for protection. As Palooka called him a sissy sucker puncher, the larger man began an attack that felt like metal pipes against Jones's forearms. Coco's voice boomed over the crowd in the entire gathering. Hey, Chick, what are you doing? Get him out of there! Codulio leaped up and ripped the ropes from the stanchions. Then he yanked the rest of the ropes and threw the remains back into the gym. Palooka stared at Julio and hit him with dozens of punches. Julio just stood in place and then walked toward Palooka. Like a diesel train, Julio advanced and lifted Palooka over his head and hurled him against the wall. Palooka's lifeless form bounced forward and ended up back in the ring. Julio brushed his sports shirt. What the hell is going on here, chick? yelled Coco. Five seconds and Jones would have lasted the round. Five seconds and Palooka would have killed him. Are you losing your friggin' mind, chick? Coco climbed into what was left of the ring. Dulio checked Jones's face and wiped the blood off his cheek and nose. Jones, are you all right? I think so. You're going to PW Medical, bro. He turned to a chick who was telling everyone all bets are off. You got ethics violations here, chick. That was real stupid. What about my boy Palooka? To hell with Palooka. You get up here and check out Jonesy, and then we're all taking him to Prince William Medical. Someone helped Chick into the flattened ring. Chick jogged across to Jones. Didn't think I'd last that long, did you, Chick? Asked Jones. Chick held Jones's face. Your nose is broken. Ribs aren't too good either, said Jones. If I were you, Chick, I'd get Palooka out of town now before word of this spreads, said Coco. Chick signaled to several guys along the side of the ring. Why the hell did this happen? Ten thousand if I knocked him out. Grand if I lasted around or Chick wouldn't talk about Mobley. Why you shyster? I got a good mind to call Mr. Fiore. We are just having fun, Coco. If Dulio hadn't come in here, Jonesy would have been screwed. Just another five seconds, Coco, said Jones. Shut up, Jonesy. You're as much at fault here as Chick. He turned to Chick as he applied a steptic pencil to Jones's cheek and nose. Okay, Chick, start talking. They brought Palooka on a stretcher around the ring and toward the stairs. Mobley, Mobley, this is a long time ago. A skillful boxer with a deadly knockout punch. Never mind that. Where is he? Asked Coco. I think somebody took him out said Chick as he placed a band-aid over Jones's cut brow. Why do you say that? asked Jones. We owed him at least fifteen grand in past earnings. He never came by to pick it up. Never heard from him or Betty Ann. Betty Ann? asked Jones. Did she wear a charm bracelet? Betty Ann Lovell, yeah, I remember the charm bracelet. She hung out here. She was Harry's girlfriend. This other guy kept picking her up. Word got around she was cheating on Harry. 
He kept a tight grip on the woman is what happened. I think he beat on her. I didn't blame her for getting picked up by some other guy. Did the other guy pick her up in a brown Toyota? Asked Jones. It was 25 years ago, Jonesy. How the hell do I know? Listen, said Coco. Put this place back together and just tell everyone that Jonesy was a fighter from Boston. I can have Fiori's people cover. Chick approached Jones. No amateur lasted more than 30 seconds with Palooka, Jonesy. Never mind that, snapped Coco. You shouldn't be playing games like that. Dulio, follow us in the beam at a PW Medical. I'll drive the Mustang. Dulio stared down at Chick as he left what was left of the ring. Coco held Jones's elbow. Coco, I'm all right. Yeah, sure you are, champ. As they waited for x-rays, Uncle Dulio arrived with three trays from the hospital cafeteria. Jones felt the new bandage on his brow. Got coffee there, Dulio? Dulio handed him the cup. Jonesy, I'm impressed. Luca was regional champ for three years straight. How you didn't get killed is beyond me. When Father Gallagher gets here, I'll tell you. Father? He was a New England amateur champ. Granted, that was 15 years ago. But he knows offense and defense. Jones faced Dulio eating a huge Danish. Glad you showed up, Dulio. Dulio flashed him the thumbs up sign as he chewed the Danish. Luca's a boy. It's all done. He is all done. Mr. Fiori was furious with Chick. He likes you, Jonesy. Charlie would have sent Chick permanently packing. Right, Dulio? Charlie didn't waste time taking care of business. Damn lucky, Jonesy. Your nose should have been broken in ten places. But we learned why all the hullabaloo about Betty Ann. Somehow I think Lawson knew about this, said Coco. Maybe. Clayton should get the dental results this afternoon from Dr. McFadden in Hamilton. What did Morris say, Jonesy? How did the buried woman die? He said he's checking with Herbert Lane about releasing a statement. Did you have any luck getting the plate? Jonesy, he gave me three digits from some plate from 25 years ago. My contact at the registry laughed when I told him. The doctor came out in her blue scrubs. No damage. I'll get you a follow-up. The doctor is Dr. Bridegate? Right. Thank you, doctor. You can check out up front, Mr. Jones. Thank you. Thank God for small favors, said Coco as the orange-haired Gallagher, his Roman collar, darted through the ER. Thanks. What in heaven's name happened to you? Heaven had nothing to do with it, Father. Dulio, said Gallagher. I'm aware of this man, Palooka. You had no business being in the ring with Palooka. What ring? Asked Coco as he looked toward Dulio. The Gallagher backpedal. Really? Asked Gallagher. And walking into the punch, that kind of worked. What the hell are you two talking about? You can move back with the punch to deaden the effect, said Gallagher. So you bobbed and weaved. Correct. Still, Luca is a pro. Not anymore, said Dulio, finishing the Danish. By the way, I had Mildred check the parish records from 25 years ago. No Betty Ann Lovell. When I go to the next ecumenical meeting at First Parish, I'll check with Pastor Sykes, see if she was a parishioner. That's not the question, Jim. The question is, who did she go with in the Toyota when she ditched Mobley? And why did she return? 
then the Toyota, according to Jerry St. Clair, showed up again, but we don't know when the Toyota left because Jerry fell asleep. Gallagher raised his brows. Sounds like his epitaph. Six Feet Under, Chapter 12 After Clayton told Jones that Betty Ann Lovell was indeed buried under his patio for 25 years, Jones stood in line at the town hall, a modern flat-roof building south of town. At least a dozen people had approached him in the corridor about his one-round special with Kid Palooka. Pudgy Wilson, in his garage uniform, waddled more than he walked up to Jones. He stared at Jones's cut above the eye and slice on his cheekbone. God love you, Matthias. I never thought you would become a professional fighter. Pudge, all I did was step in the ring with Kid Palooka. No, that's not it. You decked the Iron Man. He asked for it. Right in my kitchen, said Jones. Pudgy pointed at Jones's chest. I heard you're already in training. Not true. And Trick Quarry's lined up about in Boston. Jones exhaled and turned fully. Where did you hear that nonsense? When Arnie pulled into the pumps yesterday, he said he had the skinny on your new career. Well, you got totally erroneous information, Pudgy. Arnie tends to exaggerate. Jones did not even respond to that eternal truth. Pudge, your father was chief here before George. 32 years. Betty Ann Lovell, did she have a family? Pudgy stroked his chin, then he nodded. Her parents were in PW. I think they've passed. Her brother was in the service. Jerry St. Clair once told me George Lovell moved to California. You should contact Jerry. Right, said Jones, not wanting to listen to Jerry's take on the world. Everybody thinks Lovell's body was buried under your patio. A female skeleton was taken away by Clayton Morris, but Jones knew he could not break Clayton's confidence. What about Mobley? Do you remember your dad talking about Mobley? Sure. He and Froggy hated each other. They both wanted to be Lark's assistant. Froggy is at it again, Pudge. George thinks he burnt up your Jeep. Jones shook his head. Froggy's crazy, but I don't think he'd go that far. He was never the same after fighting Harrison Mobley in the old gym. I saw it. He got his ass whipped. Jones grinned. What did the people say about Mobley's disappearance? You think he was murdered. Your backyard is all dug up. This is true. He split. Arnie saw it all. I know the story, said Jones. My father grilled Arnie. The whole thing that night was one big mess. Anyone could have killed Mobley. Yet Arnie kept telling the story. That's a rarity. Where's the body? Like Jimmy Hoffa. Exactly. Dad said there was a brown Toyota that brought Lovell back. I know, and it kept circling the common. And that's where the story ends. Arnie had gone home by then. It was late, said Pudgy. What about Lark? Oh, Lark was really slosh that night. Right, the DeSoto, said Jones. He ran over a bicycle on the corner. Pudgy nodded. Dad never mentioned that. Why are you here, Matthias? I'm going to check the street listings back then. Pudgy headed to the tax collector to the left. Good luck in the ring. Jones waved and smiled at Pudgy. Arnie would not be able to spread his rumors without an audience. To his right, Archie Lincoln descended the stairs with two men in suits. 
He dismissed the men and carried his briefcase over to Jones. You need a lawyer, coach. Why is that, Mr. Attorney? Chick Corey and Joey Palooka could incur some real damages. Frankly, I'm surprised, said Lincoln, leaning toward Jones's bandage, that you aren't in the hospital. I went to the ER last night. I'm all right. What's going on with your backyard? Somebody told me a body was taken from underneath those pavers. That's what happened. Lincoln nodded. How is that possible? Lincoln focused his azure eyes on Jones. I find it odd that someone lives in a house with a body buried under the patio. Does this mean your wife will drop the injunction about the historical nature of the patio? Lincoln gave him an icy stare. Oh, we can consider it. Oh, thanks a lot. At the reception desk, Gwen Chisholm, a little woman with short frosted hair, motioned Jones forward and Lincoln left without saying anything more. Jones watched him leave through the side entrance and minutes later, Gwen had him in front of a computer screen searching the street listings and residents from 25 years ago. From across the room, Franny waved and pulled up a seat. She studied Jones's face and looked closely at his slice and bruised face. Matthias, you really got bashed. Are you crazy? I'm okay. Have you been checked out medically? Franny, I'm okay. Jones grinned, looking down at her receipt for the house taxes. What rumors have you heard, Fran? Ah, the usual, that you'll become a professional boxer, and there's another one that the Mafia is after you, she said, and they both laughed, and that the Iron Man is in training for a rematch. All of which may be true, said Jones, pointing to the screen. I didn't know Locke lived on North Elliott Street. Says he was an athletic supporter, said Jones, as they both cackled. Someone wrote this on purpose. Franny continued laughing as she spoke. He was married to Mrs. Lark back then. Oh, pre-Miss Nightingale. I guess, said Franny. Right, Lark's past is a little sketchy. A little? I was just thinking. I would have liked to have lived back then. No Bucky Driscoll. He was in New York back then, said Jones. What was Garibaldi Enterprises, Franny? Northridge Apartments. Oh, it was a humongous old house north of Fletcher Hill on Route 32. The place burned down 20-plus years ago. Jones stroked his chin. I wonder if it burned around the same time as the shenanigans at my house. You think they're related? Maybe. I'd like to know who the tenants were. Was anybody killed? Don't know. How did the fire start? You'll have to look back on the old Enterprise archives. I actually need to go up there, said Jones. Place is just a field now, coach, said Franny. What about Mobley? One Shore Road, Harrison Mobley, 34, college professor, professional boxer, lost the house taxes 23 years ago. Why would you just leave without paying your taxes and selling your house, asked Franny. Ha, ah, exactly. Chick Corey told me Mobley never came in to pick up 15000 in earnings from fighting either. He looked into Franny's bright green eyes. Franny, whatever I speculate here has to remain hush-hush. I have a secret weapon. Well, what's that? It's called Zipper Mouth. I work in a coffee shop and restaurant. It's part of the job description, keeping your mouth shut if you don't want a reputation as a blabbermouth. Jones hesitated, and then he spoke. Clayton told me the body is Lovell's body. 
Do you think Mobley killed her? One could argue that Mobley killing Lovell is the reason why he up and left. Or, Coach, someone else killed him, or both he and Lovell. Jones produced a nervous grin. Or, he killed Lovell and somebody killed him. Franny leaned back. This is the most confusing mess I've ever seen. That's exactly what my Aunt May said last night on the phone, said Jones. Then it comes down to motive, pure motive. Using your first scenario, why would Mobley kill his girlfriend? She was a vamp? Haven't heard that word in a while, Franny Wanny. But Chick told me word was around she was cheating on Mobley. That's interesting, said Franny. How was she killed, did Clayton say? Jones pretended to break a stick. Broken neck from the back. Punch? Well, that's what I thought. Punch from the professional fighter? So it all boils down to the brown car. Lovell goes into the house and later leaves with someone in a brown Toyota. But that same brown Toyota dropped her off again and began circling the common. Jerry saw the Toyota, right? Asked Franny. Well, if he hadn't fallen asleep, we might have answers. Side road theory. Lovell was going to dump Mobley for someone else and came back in to tell Mobley when she came back the second time. Mr. X was driving the Toyota and the reason he went round and round is because she never came out. So, said Franny, Mr. X comes back to find that Mobley, in anger, has murdered Lovell and Mobley either begins burying her or he has buried her. Jerry wouldn't see that from where he was on the drugstore roof. Correct. And Locke just happened to be three sheets to the wind in the wrong place at the wrong time. Story of his life, chuckled Franny. But my side road theory is a side road theory. Mobley could have left town or someone else could have murdered Lovell. If they did, but that would be too much of a coincidence that the apartment building burned to the ground right after Mobley disappeared. Jones's cell rang. Hey, Jonesy, how's the champ? Champ is doing fine. I hate to be the one to ruin your day, but Bruno just heard Lane is investigating your one-rounder with Palooka. Why? Because he thinks he can be big man. I have a call in to Mr. Fiore. He'll take care of Lane. And the old man's been calling me. How did he find out? Come on, Jonesy, nothing gets by the old man. We just tell him the truth. If the cannoli hits the fan, we want the old man on our side. You mean... I mean, that's how my mother toned it down. Franny tapped his arm with her index finger. Jones looked up. How about checking the old excise tax records for the Toyota? That's a great idea, Franny. Where the hell are you, Jonesy? I ain't disturbing nothing, am I? No, Franny was just showing me... Hey, that ain't none of my business. I'll talk to you. Jones walked Franny back to her house after he was told by Sylvia Bronchuk that her office would have to review the personal tax records even for a motor vehicle. I'm going out into the field tomorrow morning if you want to come along, Franny. I'll get McGill's input on it, too. You really think you'll find something? You never know what you might stumble over. Jones started down Franny's front steps when Lark and his blue blazer and feathered hat pulled onto the sidewalk with his long brown sedan. The heavy exhaust leaked into the fall air. Lark, you're on the sidewalk, shouted Jones. Lark leaned toward the open passenger side window. Dias, I'm leaving town before they put me in jail. 
Jones approached the moving car, the engine idling loudly. Put your foot on the brake, Lark. Right oh! Why would somebody put you in jail? Because of the big blowout 25 years ago. Jones opened the door and leaped inside. The car reeked with three different air fresheners. Jones tweaked his nose. What do you want to say? Lark took his foot off the brake, and as he went to place his foot on the pedal, he hit the accelerator. The brown bomber rumbled up the concrete, knocking over outside displays and two parking signs before Lark ratcheted the wheel right. The old clunker crossed Main Street as a small SUV screeched the brakes and spun behind Lark's sedan. Holy smoke, shouted Jones. Turn right toward my house. But Lark, stay on the road. Lark skidded before he went right and careened into Jones's fence. The car came to an abrupt stop, less than a yard from Jones's living room window. With his mouth open, Jones slowly rotated his head toward Lark. I thought we'd be in trouble. Jones paused and tried to contain his anger. Lark, why, other than the obvious, are you going to jail? Because I know the truth about the big blowout. What do you mean? I walked right in on Snowden after he shot Mobley in the shoulder, Matthias. Then Mobley wasn't dying. Locke removed his glasses and shook his head. Snowden threatened me until the day he died. And I have to say, I was happy when they killed him. What about Betty Ann Lovell? asked Jones. I saw her leave. Did you see her come back? No, sir. I got in Big Red and headed pell-mell down the street. Big Red was your DeSoto. Yes, sir. Too bad it went over the cliff at the quarries at the notch. Jones stared at Lark. You see, Henrietta Bagley and I were taking a swim, and I left Big Red in neutral. Why did you leave so fast during the big blowout? Snowden. He was threatening to shoot me in the family jewels. Jones covered his mouth as he laughed and produced a phony cough to stop the laughter. <coughs> so, so you left. I swerved up the sidewalk in Big Red, but I ruined Froggy's bike at the corner and then hurried back to my wife, Mrs. L. See, she was a little strange. She was strange? Jones pinched the bridge of his nose. He could see through his living room window and into his kitchen. So, Lark, you won't be prosecuted now for what happened that night. I hid under the bed all night. Mrs. L, she thought it was a kinky game. Look, Lark, Snowden is dead and you didn't kill anyone. Correct, old boy. What do you know about Betty Ann? Prince William girl. She had really big... No, no, no. What do you know about her? Nothing at all. She wore a charm bracelet, correct? I think so. I'll have somebody get your car out of here. Franny will walk you back to your house. Can you get me tickets to your next fight? Asked Locke, removing his glasses. There will be no next fight, Locke. Oh, that's what Cassius Clay said. Ali, said Jones. Alley-oop! Six Feet Under, Chapter 13 Strickland gawked at the crusted slice, now healing above Jones's eye. Then he studied the cheekbone in his nose. Well, your nose looks okay. Jones lifted a glass of cranberry juice at his kitchen counter. It's still tender. I did some reading on Palooka. I don't know anything about the guy, George, said Jones, except he packs a killer punch when he moves in on you. Strickland handed him a printout. 
The man is 22-1 and one with 15 knockouts. You're damn lucky he didn't kill you. He tried. Thank God Dulio crashed into the gym. Who beat him? Don't know. Besides Dulio. Strickland smiled and brought the thin glass of iced tea to his lips. Herbert Lane is thinking about filing charges against Chick Corey. It won't happen, said Jones, eyeing his chewed-up lawn and patio. Where's the body, George? I'm tending to agree with you, Matthias. I had the FBI run checks on Mobley. Everything ends on the night of the big blowout. Locke's phrase. So you're saying Locke saw Snowden come in. Hamilton was already there. That's what he says, said Jones. He saw Snowden shoot Mobley in the shoulder. Lots of blood, but not fatal. And the woman in the morgue, Betty Ann Lovell, was there and left in a brown Toyota, said Strickland. Driver, unknown. I'll find out if anyone living in Hamilton 25 years ago drove a brown Toyota, said Jones. Lark was threatened by Snowden, and being the tower of jelly that he is, he staggered out of the house. He got into his DeSoto and drove like a maniac up Shore Road. He hit the fence and the bike. Jones hit his forehead with the butt of his hand. Wait, I'm losing my touch. What do you mean? The bike. Lark told me it was Froggy Finley's bike. Strickland walked over to Jones at the sliders. He said that? Sorry, I must be punch drunk. What was Froggy Finley doing near Mobley's house? Jones leaned against the wall and thought as he looked down. Just add that tidbit to this confusing mess, George. At least we have him in a jail cell. So Lovell comes back to the house but never comes out. And whoever was in that Toyota came back to the house. Strickland pointed at him. Well, you don't know that for sure. I say, Mobley killed Lovell because he was furious. Lovell was stepping out and had a new boyfriend. The new boyfriend, I think, entered the house and found Mobley burying Lovell. Even though Mobley was shot by Mickey Snowden. Then the new boyfriend somehow killed Mobley. Jones squinted as he thought. Would Lovell leave Mobley for Froggy? Are you kidding? laughed Strickland. Froggy is a blithering idiot. I think Froggy knows something. As I always say, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Ain't that the truth? Strickland took out his phone and pushed a button. He waited for the phone to ring. Wendell! What? I know you're not at the beach. Has Froggy said anything to you in the course of conversation? He what? I'll be right over. I have some new information. No, no, I don't care to speak on the phone. Goodbye, Wendell. He turned to Jones. When they handed out brains, Wendell was at the beach with Peggy Gautowski. Even if Froggy knows something, you'll have to push him, George. He's so stubborn. I know. I'll call you later, Matthias. You know what they say about the statue of limitations for murder. Yeah, it's a fool's errand. Jones talked with his backfield at the chalkboard in his office. The fluorescent lights blazed overhead mid-afternoon on Columbus Day. You gonna fight again, coach? asked Marty. Man, you were right in there with him, coach. The fight was an aberration, Marty. Which fight? asked Manzetti. Listen to me. Get your head straight here. Chuck Tanner is one of the best guards I've ever coached. 
With a guy like that pulling out and blocking the end instantly, what the hell are you waiting for in the backfield? You're getting the ball and posing for pictures. Just go through the hole they open up for you. Yes, coach. Practice at four. Practice at four. As the group left, Franny knocked on the doorframe. Lazy is as lazy does. Oh, hi, Franny. You're exactly right. McGill just left the Colonial House, Matthias. He says he'll meet you up at Northridge Lane in 15 minutes. How's this for a side road theory? Lay it on me, coach. The killer, Mr. X, drove Mobley up to the Northridge apartments, killed him, and then buried him somewhere under the foundation. Then he later torched the building. What's the evidence for that? Don't be difficult, Franny, said Jones, smiling. He flipped the light switch and they stepped into the corridor. You don't have witnesses, either. You sound like Coco, said Jones as he locked the door. I think Locke or even Froggy knows who was driving that Toyota. Jones guided her out the gym doors. The foundation to that apartment building must still be there. And just who will dig up that field where the apartment building was? asked Franny. Jones made a face and shrugged his shoulders. I don't even know who owns the land. Thanks for joining the party. I like challenges. Franny maneuvered her white Subaru up Route 32, shifting quickly. What driving, said Jones. You could be the next Barney Oldfield. Who's Barney Oldfield? asked Franny. Early race driver in Indy. My dad always got tickets to Indy every year. I haven't gone since his death. You need to pick up that tradition again, coach, she said, pointing her index fingers at him. Franny pulled over near the end of Woozy's fence. Woozy's coming home next week, said Jones. Maybe Bucky will drive him home, said Franny as Jones laughed. Sorry, she said. She pulled over the far end of the fence. They stood facing down Route 32 with the fence to the right and Woozy's farmhouse a few hundred yards back down the dirt drive. Matthias, let's say for the sake of argument that Bucky was not driving his security car. Well, I need to talk to Arnie's sister. If she doesn't pop you, she's got a vicious right hook. She may have been preoccupied. Franny made a face that mixed between putrid and nauseated. I don't even want to go there, said Jones. Franny panned the fence area as she spoke. I think Bucky would have folded under pressure if he was driving that car. Right! But who would steal the car, and why, and why return it? Jones took out his phone. You calling Bucky? Sorry to say, I'm calling Arnie. Franny rolled her eyes. Jones raised the phone to his ear and let it ring. Yeah, Pudgy. Just top it off, baby. Arnie, called Jones, but Arnie didn't hear him. What, Pudgy? No, no, I threw that cigarette into the street, not by your gas pumps. Ah, you worry too much. Arnie, will you answer this call? Hey, who's there? Matthias. How'd you get on my line? I called your phone, Arnie. Maybe Georgie Strickland is tapping my line. No, Arnie. Listen, I need to know what happened with Bucky's car. Did your sister see anything? Hey, the Buckster and Evelyn are, uh, well, uh... <laughs> I get the picture. Look, if Bucky didn't drive that car, who did? Let me call my sister, but you owe me. I owe you nothing, said Jones, cutting the call. He looked at the giggling Franny at the end of the grass and fence near the yellow maple trees. He says he'll call Evelyn. 
At least I don't have to talk to her, said Jones. She's brutal, said Franny. Did Woozy see another vehicle? No, Woozy hit the tree down the other end. Jones turned toward the highway as a car went by. You'd think there'd be skid marks on the road, Matthias. Not if a second car fishtailed down the shoulder, said Jones. Franny, this is new sod. So is the rest of the grass back to the fence repair. Somebody's covering up, she said as Jones's phone rang. Hello, Arnie. No, this is Evelyn Dewars. What the hell do you care about my sex life? I don't. Oh, one of those Mickey Sargent. Misogynist. If I were there, I'd smack you. Jones opened his eyes at Franny and thank God Evelyn was not standing in front of him. Was anyone around Bucky's apartment when his car was stolen? If you're looking for something kinky, forget it. Did you see anyone? After a considerable silence, Evelyn smoked. Motorcycle. Around the lot before I went back in the... Aha. Uh -huh. Watch it, Jones. You don't have to elaborate, Evelyn. Are you sure you saw the motorcycle? Cars passed to his left. Jones covered his other ear. Don't challenge me, Jones. I wouldn't think of it. He faced Franny, who looked as if she was about to burst out laughing. A Harley made a lot of noise. The line clicked. Brownie Plimpton, said Franny, listening at the earpiece. He owns a motorcycle? He does, Matthias, but why would he chase Bucky's car? Franny, I have no idea. Northridge Lane, a tiny roadway with three houses around a cul-de-sac. Woods surrounded an open field with grass over a foot high. The remnants of an asphalt entryway to the apartments connected with the lane. I remember this place, said Franny. Huge old building from the 1800s, cheap rent. Old gray shingles and you could always smell the gas line. Jones tried to visualize the bulky building in the grass. I need to find out who owns the land now. How far back was it from the street, Franny? Had a dirt parking lot and a side lot past the entryway. Lots of maples and satellite dishes on the roof. Old gray shingles. Jones walked onto the grass. Why are there no trees here? Used to be farmed for a couple years, Matthias. Corn, if I remember correctly. Jones paced forward in the field and wondered if the foundation had been filled in after the fire. He removed his cell as Franny walked with him in the grass. He pushed George Strickland's number. George Strickland. George, do you remember the cause of the Northridge Apartments fire? What? I don't know about that. I was just a kid. Why? Someone may have killed Mobley and buried him in that basement, and then set the place on fire. Oh, come on. That's wild. And then the debris was taken out and the rest backfilled. You're saying there's a body down there. I just find it interesting that the whole place went up in flames after Mobley disappeared. So I'm going to be checking records for a Toyota that brought Mobley's body to this building. Clayton is already tearing that you had that theory about Mobley being buried in your backyard. Just means we've eliminated possibilities. It's one step closer to the truth. Then you'll have to pay for it. McGill's Jetta turned onto Northridge Lane from Route 32, and he parked it next to Franny's car. The thing we have to look at is the present. Your Jeep was destroyed because someone wanted you not to look into this. I understand that. That's the only reason this is an open case. I talked to Evelyn Dewars. She was in Bucky's apartment when the security car was stolen. Oh, dear 
God. Jones waded through the ensuing silence. Are you there, George? Oh, I'm here. McGill exited the car with a folder in his hand. I wouldn't put it past Bucky to make up some story just to keep his job. She said she saw a motorcycle in the complex. Devil and dudes. Look, Matthias, you're driving me crazy. Brownie Plimpton drives a motorcycle. Stop it. I think you're grasping at straws for something from two and a half decades ago. Gill spoke with Franny as Jones exhaled. I'll talk to you later, George. Then he held out his phone in frustration as he walked down to McGill. Matthias, I uh, found an index of articles on the computer about this fire. Susan is going to check the back issues from our warehouse in Prince William. The date of the first story, he said, opening the folder. July 25th, the summer after Jerry's article from Swanson's Bar. It coincides with the 23rd of July mess at your house back then. We'll know more when Sue copies the articles. Jones nodded. Let's review them over dinner, Tom. Good idea. I'll call Jim Salinas at the Chateau and get some takeout after I leave the warehouse in PW. We won't eat out on the patio, will we? asked Jones. No, we won't. Jones nodded and turned toward the field. If I run this theory, Mr. X returns to my house after Mobley murdered Lovell because Lovell was stepping out with Mr. X. X forces Mobley up here to Northridge. He kills Mobley and buries him probably in the basement. Then X burns the place down, said Franny. Right, Franny. And I don't think anyone was killed in the fire, or it would have been common knowledge here in town. Well, it all hinges on the timing of the fire, said McGill. You have no names of the people who lived here or had a connection with this place, said Franny. Exactly, Franny. Why here? Why bury him here? McGill tucked the folder under his arm. The alternative is that Mobley killed Lovell and assumed a new identity somewhere else. But X came back in the Toyota, said Jones. Or Mobley was killed at your house, Matthias, and dumped somewhere else, said Franny. Again, it's the coincidence of the fire and the Lovell murder that leads me up here. You want me to get down to Jefferson's and get you a shovel? asked McGill, laughing. I need to know why the killer came back here to bury and burn away the evidence. Jones and Tom McGill sat at Jones's kitchen table. McGill had brought him chicken parmesan and pasta from the Chateau in Prince William. The Enterprise owner wore a red Hamilton College sweatshirt and a baseball cap. He poured red wine for Jones and himself. Jim told me to tell you that the meal is free. Well, that's nice of him. Why? McGill sat across from Jones. Jim had a problem at the restaurant with Palooka's drinking and some broken furniture. I don't associate Palooka with the Chateau, said Jones. Somebody pounded on the sliders. What now? Jones leaned around the table. Arnie Dewars in his blue Dewars jacket smoked a cigarette and looked out toward Shore Road. McGill pointed toward Arnie. You want me to get rid of him? asked McGill. No, let me have the pleasure, said Jones, setting down his napkin and he crossed into the kitchen. He slid the slider doors open into a burst of cigarette smoke. Arnie, what can I help you with? Oh, smells like Italian. What are you having? Dinner with Tom McGill, said Jones. I'll catch you later, Arnie. Hey, Tommy! Yelled Arnie, reaching his voice as he straddled the patio cider. Hello, Arnie. Arnie, what do you want? Asked Jones, swatting away the cigarette smoke. 
Hey, where's Franny Wanny? Working. Arnie, what do you want? I'm on a mission of mercy. Jones put his hands on his hips. What happened now? Ever since you fired Bose, he and the boys are broke. Arnie, if I'm not mistaken, Bucky, one of his employees, hit the gas line, then my whole yard became a crime scene. Have a little compassion, will ya? With the Iron Man attacking me in my own kitchen, and these clowns eating my food, forget it. The Iron Man is in tip-top condition to take you out, especially after you showed off with Kid Palooka. Jones exhaled and plowed Arnie back on the step. Goodbye, Arnie. Why don't you have a warm-up fight with Froggy? Rumor is that you locked him up so you wouldn't have to fight him. Jones furrowed his brow. Hey, Arnie, where's Brownie Plimpton? Froggy hired him to whack me with that football. I think he's the one who chased somebody in Bucky's car. Brownie was scouted by the NFL. Yeah, sure he was. If you see Brownie, let me know. One more thing, said Arnie, putting his arm across the sliding door. Another one of your enemies was at the yard today. Come on, Arnie, I've had a long day. Derek Gataki is in town. Watch out! McGill listened from the living room. Who cares? asked Jones, turning and closing the sliders. Goodbye, Arnie. Eddie in the yard tells me Derek brought kerosene last week. Jones opened the sliders. What? Does Strickland know this? Georgie don't know. Gataki's a jailbird, Matthias. So you're saying Gataki burned my jeep? All I'm saying is give Bose a chance. What did Gataki buy today, Arnie? Propane. Jones's stomach churned. He stood with his mouth open. Are you kidding me? Hey, that sauce smells pretty good, said Arnie. You want that garlic bread, Tommy? Forget it, Arnie. Stingy, stingy. Jones thought about the Northridge Apartments. Arnie, do you remember the Northridge Apartment fire? Oh, yeah. That place went up like a matchbox. Anybody killed? Burnt to the ground. But was anybody killed? Arnie furrowed his brow and stroked his chin. Nah, I don't think so. Jones nodded. How did it start? They always said somebody left a lighted cigarette in the hallway. I find that appalling, said McGill, referring to Arnie's habit of tossing out lighted cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what did they do with the rest of the debris? Those boards were smoking for a month. My old man offered to give a discount to Garibaldi. Where was Garibaldi from? Jersey. They said they weren't going to rebuild. Why? asked Jones. Insurance probably didn't cover the cost of a new building. The place was a dump. I used to have a girlfriend up there, Thelma Watkins. You were 12. Hey, she was hot. She was on the third floor. Right, well, thanks, Arnie. How about the pasta? Wait a minute. Where's Thelma now? She obviously got out. She moved to L.A. after the fire. How did everyone get out without casualties? Think she said something about a guy running through the place yelling there's a fire. See, she stayed at her aunt's house on Dupree Street in Prince William, and I hitchhiked over and... Bye, Arnie. Bye, said Jones, pushing the sliders as Arnie's voice became muted through the glass. Oh, I really liked her. We went together for about four or five years off and on. Arnie walked around to the ripped-up patio and tossed his cigarette into the hole. 
The gas line, said Jones as he ran outside. Arnie, the gas line. Yeah, 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 said Arnie as he slid into his truck and disappeared down Shore Road. Jones leaped into the hole and pinched the cigarette. He crawled out and snuffed it out in the discarded pavers. Then he returned to the house and closed the slider door. Unbelievable, said McGill. The good news is that for once, Arnie has relevant information, said Jones. McGill handed Jones a photocopy of Jerry St. Clair's first article about the fire. Jerry wrote this article in the morning edition. Right, page one exclusive, said Jones. Fire trucks and two police cars were parked next to a pile of charred boards on the photocopy picture. Okay, the headline. Northridge complex destroyed in two-alarm fireball by Jerry St. Clair, page one exclusive. Okay. Jones laughed at Jerry's drama and shook his head. Hamilton. The Hamilton Fire Department says that the destructive fire in Northridge Lane last night was the result of a space heater malfunction in apartment 9B, according to Police Chief Gus Butchie Wilson. The building housing the Northridge Apartments was constructed in 1896 and originally housed a rope factory. The New Hampshire Cordage Corporation went out of business in 1933 during the Great Depression. The building remained vacant until 1957 when it was purchased and converted into 27 efficiency apartments. Chief Willard Compton tells the Enterprise around 9.30 last night a good Samaritan running through the halls allowed the 38 people living in the complex to escape before the fire spread. Conrad Newsom, 83, told this reporter he was glad to be alive. It was far enough back as the flames spread out of the basement windows and the complex was ablaze sometime later. That makes no sense, said McGill as he set down a fork full of pasta. Forget about him for a witness, said Jones. Let me ask you this, Tom. If the fire started in 9B, why were the flames coming out of the basement? Residents were brought to the Hamilton Middle School under the auspices of the American Red Cross. State Fire Marshal Alfred Winslow said this building was clearly an accident waiting to happen, with some of the electrical and plumbing fixtures not updated in decades. Thought it was a space heater, said Jones. Hold it. Arnie said the guy wanting the residents got them out. If that old man is right, the fire started in the basement after they were all outside. I think it was deliberately set. Maybe. About 560000 was done in damages and no firefighters injured. Jones raised his brows at McGill across the table. How about asking a few questions, Jerry? Well, Jerry was for the sensation on selling papers. And who was the Good Samaritan in the hall? He doesn't even mention it. Again, my gut tells me that guy was clearing them out and he started the fire in the basement. That's an interesting theory. There's another five articles here. No, it's the perfect murder, Tom. Absolutely perfect. Ah, there's a body in that rubble below the field, said McGill. Jones leaned back in the chair. Have your chicken palm, Matthias. I'm beginning to think I'm right. Okay, then, who is Mr. X? asked McGill. Jones shook his head. Is Mr. X the Good Samaritan? Who knows? It's possible if I believe your theory, but getting back to what Arnie said, I can't say I like Gitaki on the loose with a tank of propane. It's the same M.O., Tom, with my Jeep in Northridge. 
Taki must be working for someone, Matthias. He was just a kid somewhere else at the time of the fire. Someone else doesn't want this thing investigated and ordered Gataki to destroy my Jeep and now he has the propane. Jones dialed Strickland but got his voicemail. George, I just learned from Arnie that Derek Gataki bought kerosene at Dewar's last week and propane today. He ended the call. Matthias, I would sleep with one eye open. Lots going on in this episode. Jones and McGill are tortured by a 25-year-old cassette from Jerry St. Clair. As the tape plays, Jones learns Hamilton Fletcher made a deal with mobster Mickey Snowden for a new science building. And we hear about a gunshot at Mobley's. Jones questions whether Lark, who was there, fired a gun. And there's an unknown woman at Mobley's house that evening with the Toyota circling round and round. The woman comes back and Mobley could have killed her. Jerry somehow got the last three digits of the Toyota's license plate. The key to this seems to be the North Ridge Apartments. Jones is baffled that Pudgy Wilson, whose father was the police chief at the time, tells Jones Mobley lost that house originally for taxes and he just left the area. Something happened to those apartments. A gigantic fire right at the time of the big blowout. That's when Jones begins a side road theory, wondering if there is a body buried in those apartments and somebody set them on fire. We'll find out more of that in episode four and next time on Fitton on the Air. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.